Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Epic Cash Twitter Spaces. I hope you're all having a great weekend. I'm actually really excited for today's episode because for the first time on the show, we actually have a special guest from outside of the Epic Cash community that's joining us today. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Brian DeMint, author of the book Bitcoin Evangelism. Brian, welcome to the show. It's really great to have you on today. And how are you getting on today? How's your weekend? It's It's been good. Today's been a nice, relaxing day. I slept in. Um, I told my wife I wasn't going to set an alarm today. So I'm uh, I like fresh. I'm very, very rested today, which is great. And I was a, as I was telling you offline and anybody that was listening in, I did a, a, a jiu-jitsu tournament yesterday. Um, and so I'm a little bit sore from that. Um, but I love <laughs> that's it's one of my passions is martial arts and um, submission grappling and things like that. So I got to uh, live out one of my passions yesterday um, in, in martial arts. And today I get to live out my passions by talking Bitcoin with you guys. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, first of all, I'd just like to congratulate you on your book. I know I messaged you personally, but I would like to say it on here as well. I wasn't able to read all of it because I know I just received it. I think it was a week ago, maybe today, maybe a week ago. Um, but I managed to get through a large chunk of it this week. And it's very clear to me that you're extremely passionate about you know, people's money, investments, the banking system, inflation, crypto, and, and many more. The book contains a lot of information and it, it's a fantastic book. So, you know, congratulations to you. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I'm a, just a guy that got into Bitcoin, Bitcoin in you know, 2013. I think I heard about it for the first time in 2012 um, and just really dismissed it. But, you know, somebody that's kind of once I had the light bulb moment go off for me, has just been passionate. And I'm sure that's just how that's I mean, I, when I ask other people their story uh, about how they learned about Bitcoin, it seems like it's very similar for a lot of people is they were dismissive of it. <laughs> and then they then they dove in and it just forces you to study all these things like economic policy, monetary policy macroeconomics and so um it, it's this very enlightening process and so it's just it's cool yeah i, I wrote a book um but it's i'm just like a a, a, a regular bitcoin pleb you know a regular just <laughs> guy that just loved bitcoin and have been thinking through these topics for a long time um and so one of the ways i try to <laughs> explain it is you know I, I don't have a particularly sophisticated mind or anything like that i just I want to be at one caveman explaining to another caveman how Bitcoin works, you know? <laughs> and so um, hopefully that's what we can get across um, in the book. And, and some of the things are just like inherently more technical. Some of them are inherently more complicated. So it just takes a little bit of exposure. It's like learning a new language, right? Um, I'm sure you're probably done with that with where you're, where you're living in Argentina. Um, and so it's, you being exposed to a new language um, is Bitcoin's like that. It's the same thing. A new technology is the same thing as a new language, right? Like you just need to be around it. Sometimes the terms, sometimes the words don't make sense. But if you just sit in it for long enough and listen to the context around it, it really helps to uh, to open up your eyes. And then you start to think of new caveats to the technology, right? New new potential applications. And that's what's so cool is when you're at the forefront of a new technology you might think of a new application of this technology that nobody's ever thought of, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's how people were able to, the people that paid attention to 
early computer programming and the internet. Sure. And I mean, the guys that, that invented PayPal and, you know, Amazon and these things, like those are the guys, the computer nerds from the nineties are the guys that are blasting rockets into space today and, you know, being space cowboys, you know, it's like, it's like they're so <laughs> far ahead just because they were thinking of new applications and new technology. And that's, that's where we're at today is like, I hope that I can influence. I mean, that would be like the dream would be to influence somebody that someday they they build this killer application for Bitcoin or this scaling solution or this this some sort of merchant solution for Bitcoin. And they were to say, like, oh, I read Bitcoin evangelism and it changed my perspective. I never thought of Bitcoin that way. That would be that would be my ultimate goal, you know, 10 years, 20 years from now to have somebody say that. Okay, I mean, awesome. Um, I mean, I, I must admit to start off with, I think you probably put two and two together from my messages this week, but we don't agree on everything in your book. Um, and that's perfectly okay. We, we don't need to. Uh, but I'm sure we can get into that a little bit later on. Uh, but just as a like a disclaimer from myself, I don't know everything, of course. So perhaps if I'm wrong on a few elements that we discussed today, then maybe some research afterwards or you can correct me how, however we want to play it out but um yeah we we can get into that a little bit later on but um before we get into your book why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself your background i believe i read on your one of your profiles that you had a, a chain of businesses so would you like to tell me a little bit about that as well yeah so um i still so we my wife and i we started our first business in 2008 when we were 22 so we're 36 now we've been doing it for, for 14 years um and it it was an opportunity I, I actually went to college and i was working on a master's in forensic psychology like my goal was to be a criminal profiler in the fbi and uh wow when okay. i was going through that program <laughs> like that that was my career path um so i have a degree in human behavioral sciences i didn't i didn't complete my forensic psychology masters just because we, we ended up starting a business i dove into that full time but um, so instead of being an FBI agent and this like bad a guy that's going around and, you know, fighting crime, we actually, uh, we opened a, ch a tanning salon <laughs> of all and so, um, it was, my wife had this brilliant idea and I was just, to, uh, this was during the recession and I'm like this, you know, that, that sounds like a horrible idea, but we, we, you know, we kind of did a ton of due diligence. We did a lot of market study, um, and it was the right fit at the right time. Um, we'd actually through college, we'd saved up a bunch of money. Um, we'd both worked full time. In addition to work, you know going through college, we both graduated early from college. We were both very like determined people, and it was nice having a partner. Um, you know, we were just engaged at the time in college, but then got married right after we graduated from our under undergrad degrees. It was nice having this like equal yoke with a partner that um, shared just a, a passion and a determination to. Um, you know, be frugal and, you know, save money and look towards our future. But our plan was like, oh, we're going to use all this money to buy a house. Um, and so we'd save enough money through college to just come out of college and, and put a down payment on a house. Well, I basically worked construction and worked for cash. So I had I had no tax returns to, to, to show or credit history or anything like that. So this was right after this is right as the financial crisis was happening. And sure. uh, no, no bank. We went into the banks and we uh, tried to get a loan for a house. And they basically just laughed us out of the bank. And we're like, hey, but we have like a nice little nest egg. We have a, a good down payment. They're like, yeah, but this isn't going to happen. And so, so because we were refused the house and thank God, like I'm glad the banks turned us away because it was, still would have been, even though the prices were collapsing on houses at the time, they still fell a lot more. 
and we would have been we would have put all of our life savings into this house as opposed to a business. So we we decided, hey, let's uh, we were looking into buying a subway franchise and we were looking to buying these just different types of businesses. And so we landed on this on this tanning salon idea. Um, but anyway, so over the years, we, we started getting more of the holistic community coming in, which seemed really strange to us. Like, why are holistic people coming in for, you know, tanning? And uh, I, I'd always I'd always been a big believer in sunshine for just kind of therapeutic reasons, but more people in the holistic wellness fitness community. Um, we talked earlier about MMA. That was one of the ways I got into MMA. We actually had a bunch of uh, MMA fighters, these guys in the UFC, they were coming in and tanning. And it's their, their wellness coaches or their doctors were actually prescribing them to come in and get sunshine, regimented sunshine every day for their therapeutic purposes, getting vitamin D and, and all that kind of stuff. So anyways, as time went on, we actually rebranded it away from a tanning salon and we got more into a broad array of therapeutic light services. So we do infrared sauna treatments and red light therapy, which helps skin ailments. And then we do, we actually, instead of just kind of doing tanning bed based UV treatments, we have much nicer and kind of high flutin equipment. Now the stuff that actually, they have like digital sensors. So it'll read your skin. It'll read like the darkest part of your skin, the lightest part of your skin. And it takes essentially the risk out of tanning, which is overexposure. And, and it gives you the therapeutic benefits. So it's going to give you the nitric oxide, you know, from sunshine and, and vitamin D, blah, 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 all these things. So we, we've gone away from being a vanity business to we're like a wellness. We actually call it, it's a light therapy studio now. Um, and so we have people that are coming in and it's mostly the health community that comes into our business. So that's grown to a chain of locations. Um, we're working on some more expansions right now. Uh, we have a couple more locations in the works. Um, but anyway, so that's like kind of our base business. And, and that's been a really good business for a long time. Um, but that's enabled us to branch out and, and we, we invest in other types of businesses. What, the way that we do it, like where, where venture capitalists invest in, say, tech startups and things like that, we actually try to go back and invest in small businesses in local communities. And so we help one, if they need capital, we give them capital and invest that way. Um, but another is oh, fantastic. Through, fantastic. Um, through, you know, basically a lot of small businesses don't have any kind of resources for strategy and things like that. And so we help them strategize marketing plans or even, I mean, you go into businesses and it's kind of like, I don't know if you ever saw the show, the profit, um, it, Marcus Lemonis had used to have a great show. I don't know if it's still on TV. Um, but he would just go in and it was usually a little bit bigger businesses, but he would help them kind of like reformat their structure. And so we, we do that. And it's basically, you know, a great service to them. And then for us, it's either a, an equity purchase or it's just like, you know, we lend capital and then just kind of do a straight, um, you know, business financing at low interest rates that businesses can afford. But because we, we help them turn around their businesses, it actually makes the, the risk really low um, on that to, to make sure we get our capital back because we're actually helping them have a more solvent business, a stronger business and things like that. So um, that's been a really cool segment. Um, that's over the years we've ventured, you know, into other areas of, of investment. So obviously Bitcoin has become a very big area of investment for us. We, we do um, dabble outside of Bitcoin. We look, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to understand the DeFi space more um, to see if there's some real merit there. And so we've, you know, been investing in that for a few years now. Um, and that's, I mean, the verdict's still out on all these other elements. I mean, Bitcoin's the one killer app of blockchain that is, it, it works, right? Because we already know that it, it has all the qualities of money. Um, things like DeFi, things like smart contracts, things like NFTs, um, all those things, they might 
have solutions for the future, um, but they're just not proven use cases yet. So um, I know uh, I used to be in the Bitcoin maximalist camp where it was only Bitcoin. Now I would say I'm I'm a Bitcoin primarist. I'm a Bitcoin evangelist, meaning that I think that it's number one. It needs to be the the lion's share of our portfolio. Um, But these other ones, I mean, even as a Bitcoin maximalist, I would say that we should be, if, if you're thinking with only a Bitcoin maximalist hat on, I think we should be thinking about smart contracts, whatever Ethereum's doing, whatever Solana's doing, we should almost be happy that they're spending billions of dollars on research and development and that they're moving fast and breaking things over there because you know they're doing all this development. And when that technology, if it ever does work and if it ever does have true merit, then Bitcoin developers are sure enough going to take that and build that onto Bitcoin at some point, whether that's a side chain or a, uh, a layer three or something like that. And so you don't want to put smart contracts on at mass scale on Bitcoin right now, because if there's a rug pull or if it's not really, you know, if it's uh, if there's if there's a backdoor into it, we don't want things breaking on top of Bitcoin, because even though that's not the base protocol, it's only going to give bad PR for Bitcoin. It's going to make people think that Bitcoin isn't as decentralized and those sort of things. So let all the I'd say if we're thinking with Bitcoin maximalist hat on, let all that stuff happen over there. And if it does play out, if it does work, then, you know, it'll eventually come to Bitcoin. And I think that that's ultimately where where it would land. Anyways, so that that, that was a bit on me. I even skipped the part of my uh, background. I, I worked as a chief marketing officer on a blockchain project for a few years. Um, but that that ultimately led me kind of back to Bitcoin. Um, you know, that's actually what, my next question. That was my next okay, question. Go, that, go that's ahead. absolutely. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, you know, I understand that you were. The chief marketing officer at Athenium. Athenium, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, do, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Did you enjoy it? And how did it how did it come about? Yeah, the Athenium project is cool. Um, they're still out there. It's really small project. And we actually gained some traction about 2019 during the bear market. We, we, we'd gotten some good, like it seemed like we were really making some progress. Um, but ultimately what happened was as the chief marketing officer, I was going out and I was pitching um, our projects, we were seeking venture capital investment people because it was it was still highly centralized. Like it wasn't, you know, that's how and people don't they fail to understand this is that blockchain projects, if you hear that blockchain project or whatever, they're not decentralized like you, they're, it's I forget what the term is, but it's or it's dino, I think is the term decentralized in name only. And so it means that the project might push for eventual eventual decentralization but it's really important for people to understand if they're dabbling in altcoins to just recognize that these projects really aren't all that decentralized and our mission was to over time you know hey we're going to build a foundation it's almost kind of like the united states right like after in the united states after the revolutionary war when they fought off england and they got their own independence there was a push to make george washington the the general of the the american army to make him the king, but he actually, so there was a lot of power centralized at one point in the United States, but those early founding fathers said, okay, even though we have all this power, we're going to put things in place like a checks and balances system, three branches of government. We're going to do all these things that actually creates decentralization over time. So, I mean, that, that all things do start out centralized. Bitcoin itself was very, very centralized at the very beginning. But Satoshi put things in place that decentralized it very quickly. And now we have the most robust decentralized network. So with Athenium, um, that was part of the frustration was like going through that process of recognizing, like having to tell people, yes, we're 
we're a decentralized project because that's where we're going towards, but we're actually highly centralized right now and we're still kind of a company. Um, but anyway, so we would go in and we'd be pitching uh, vent- these venture capital firms and they would actually invite us in. It was like things that, you know, we, we thought, okay, well, they must have a handle on what blockchain is and, and they must understand some of these basic terms. So we, we would be pitching level four and five complicated blockchain things that we want to do with the Athenian blockchain, which was this concept of decentralizing educational content, making educational content, um, you know, very cheap for the masses, but then also having like a, a provable, it was called proof of uh proof of learning where you would be able to at any time prove your educational record like it's like a smart resume because most resumes are bogus and so you'd be able to have your resume on the blockchain and verifiable and all these all these interesting things but these guys we were pitching these things to them and then at the end of the pitch they would say well what's blockchain i don't even understand what bitcoin is you know and so we'd have to go back and explain these (laughs) basics to them and we're like well you guys and they manage hundreds of millions of dollars and so you think that they would have done their due diligence before but i guess they were kind of looking for us for those answers. So after a bunch of those types of meetings, I said, you know what, there's a huge information gap here. There's a huge knowledge gap. I mean, only 1% of the world has adopted Bitcoin and probably even less than 1% understands it, right? Because I know, I know a lot of people personally that have bought Bitcoin or some sort of cryptocurrency that don't even know why they bought it. Right. And so my, basically my goal at that point was I resigned at the end of 2021. So less than a year ago, I resigned from the project to write my book because I said, you know what, we need to go back to first principles. We need to talk about some of the basics. Um, and so that's how Athenium essentially led me back to just really focusing primarily on Bitcoin. And again, I, I get accused of, of, of being overly nice to altcoins in my book. Um, but that's nice that, to hear. I'd like to hear that. That's great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably the number one pushback I get um is that that i'm that i'm that i'm nice to altcoins um but you know i i think there's a a, a purpose to that and i'd be happy to, to justify my statement on that but uh anyways so that's that is how yeah athenium led back to this and uh you know what this I'm, I'm glad i'm glad i'm i'm where i'm at because it's it's uh really opened up some opportunities and very cool people to talk to like yourself and um yeah this has been a fun journey just talking bitcoin Well, I've got to say, Brian, you're making my job very easy because um, at the end of your answers, you seem to have this ability to be able to go on to my next question. So, I mean, (laughs) fantastic. No, it was, yeah, my next question was just like, you know, what were your motivations behind doing this? But it sounds as if you wanted to go back to first principles. I think you mentioned earlier being a caveman and be able to speak to other cavemen and teach them the basics. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. Well, and, and like I said, I mean, I think I know so many friends, so many guys, like I said, I trained jujitsu and the jujitsu mats after practice are probably the number one place where Bitcoin and crypto talk happens. I mean, especially in the, in the bull markets. I mean, when the, when the prices are flying off the handle, uh, you know, when, when you're hanging out with the boys, guys love talking about this stuff. But I can't tell you how many people in the last bull market were, were just so excited about Dogecoin or so excited about Chibi oh, Inu or on. some other oh, coin I... that they found. And uh, it, it's so hard in in a, in a short conversation to tell people why that's a fundamentally flawed concept, because then they because even when you kind of start to talk about basics and first principles, then they initially say, but like I can buy two million of these for one hundred dollars, you know, so I can't get that much Bitcoin. And then you got to You kind of kind of always have to answer these little questions off to the side. And so that was I'm like, man, this is such a tough conversation every time. Because the Bitcoin pitch 
even though there's certain elements that will make a person have the light bulb go off, you really need to give this. That, that's why I needed a book to do it, right? Like I wanted a book that had a, all those answers to those questions in it, or as best as I could give those answers at the time, um, you know, answers to those questions. Because yeah, like inevitably when you're having the Bitcoin conversation, it's going to go off into these di different tangents. Um, and everybody's got a different tangent. Like everybody, you know, I have a whole section in the back of the book that's like 20 questions that are com common questions. And, you know, you'll get the well, I can't own a whole whole Bitcoin, so why would I want to invest in Bitcoin? Or why won't Bitcoin be like MySpace or Yahoo and get usurped by Facebook or Google? You know, like you'll get those questions along in the conversation. And so, um, yeah, that again, going back to a huge inspiration for the book, whether it's my personal conversations or professional conversations, I mean, there's just a, a, a broad array of things that people have these kind of burning burning they need a burning answer to it they have a burning question about it um and so until those questions are answered for people um they're probably not likely to take bitcoin very seriously and then if they if they don't understand bitcoin then they don't understand why some of these other coins don't make sense um and so that's that's the other thing too okay so i'd, I'd like to get right into uh parts of your book now um and the, the place i have to start is fungibility of bitcoin now in your book you describe bitcoin as perfectly fungible so i know and i've read your book and, and the sections on fungibility but it would be great again just to hear what your thoughts are on you know what's fungibility to you and why you believe that you know, this makes Bitcoin a perfectly fungible asset today as, as per your book. Yeah. So essentially the, the breakdown I do in the book is, well, for, for anybody that's listening that doesn't know what fungibility is, I mean, if you're into Bitcoin, <laughs> you do because we're all nerds. But um, fungibility essentially means that one unit is equal to another unit. Um, and so with our currencies, you know, our fiat currencies, that's a... Uh, a pretty good quality that, that that has because if you have one dollar bill it's typically the same unless unless somebody has defaced that dollar bill um one dollar equals another dollar bill you you don't go to the store and when the guy hands you change you don't look through your dollar bills to make sure okay these are all good dollar you just you stuff them in your pocket because you know that it's going to be as good as another dollar dollar bill Bitcoin, I would say, has that same quality. And there's people that make the accusation that Bitcoin doesn't have perfect fungibility because um, usually for two main reasons, they would say Bitcoins aren't aren't entirely fungible. One, because they could have had some illicit use in the past. So um, it begs the question, would you accept a Bitcoin that, you know, not not that it's coming from a drug dealer because um, maybe you're not you're not interacting with a drug dealer, but if you could trace its history back on the chain maybe five owners ago it was owned by a drug dealer and used in a, an illicit transaction or in say human trafficking something really terrible like that would you still accept that bitcoin so people would make the argument because we can do on-chain analysis we can have a kind of an estimate where coins come from or what their history is that they're not entirely fungible so that that's a that's the first argument which is a um, fairly compelling argument and the other one is in an era where we have this ESG movement or, you know, environmental social governance um, or people are just kind of generally concerned about environment, environmental concerns. What if your coin was mined in it with uh, using fossil fuels versus using clean and renewable energy? So if you are a, an environmentalist, you may be less inclined to accept a coin that was uh, 
mined by using dirty dirty fuel sources. So those are sure. probably the two the two most compelling cases for lack of fungibility. What I would say is it's almost impossible to know exactly because it basically no Bitcoin stays intact forever. Uh, it, it's it, one Bitcoin doesn't travel throughout time throughout the chain in one piece because yes you might send me one bitcoin and i might send the next person a bitcoin but at some point that bitcoin is going to be broken down to satoshis it's going to be broken down to 100,000 satoshis here 200,000 satoshis here 10 satoshis here so it's going to be almost and then those those satoshis get mixed back into other transactions and so yes you might say it's it's unlikely that you'll ever see this bitcoin was used in, a, in an illicit transaction therefore it's bad What's usually going to happen is you might have gotten 100,000 Satoshis in a transaction. And if you really wanted to look in the history, you might be able to find that 10 of those Satoshis or 1,000 of those Satoshis were used in a really bad transaction. Um, that's possible. I don't think, the, uh, pragmatically, I don't think anybody's ever going to go do that due diligence on those coins. Therefore, one Bitcoin or one Satoshi, I think, has perfect exchange value with another bitcoin or another satoshi so that'd be kind of the general pitch to it okay well it's great that you acknowledge that and uh, admittedly as well just after your your points that you've just made i know that in your book you know you don't ignore the subject and you do acknowledge that there is a counter argument to your to your perspective um, and the example that you give is, is a good one in terms of tainted bitcoins maybe reflecting in the same way as conflict diamonds are less valuable. Um, and I know that you make a point as well in your book on the fact that it's normally the people that are supporters of the dollar um, that tend to give this argument. Now, I can tell you for absolute certainty, I, I'm not an avid supporter of any fiat currency. Um, I'm sure we can go into that a little bit later. But of course, no, no commodities backing it. And, you know, again, we can go into that in, in a, a little bit later, perhaps. But in terms of my perspective, and I think you summarized it well because to be able to define Bitcoin as a perfectly fungible asset, in my eyes, it makes it very difficult just because of the arguments you just gave. So because it can be traced and it's not private. Mm -hmm. So all the transactions of Bitcoin can be looked at by the public. And let's give a bit of a dodgy example and say that I I certainly didn't, just for the record. But let's say <laughs> I bought some Disclaimer, yeah. <laughs> Let's say I bought some Bitcoin, uh, sorry, some cocaine with Bitcoin a number of years ago on Silk Road. And for some reason, a few years later, I know you gave the argument on splitting down Bitcoins, but let's say that same whole Bitcoin happened to end up in your wallet. It's absolutely possible that someone could trace a transaction history, as you touched upon, and label that Bitcoin as tainted or blacklist your wallet and therefore make it less valuable than any clean Bitcoins or what some people refer to, refer to as virgin Bitcoins. Mm. And the other part to that is that I have read over the last few years that there have been some reports on the fact that certain entities are willing to pay a premium of something like 10 to 20% in that region for freshly mined Bitcoins. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that would be why in, in my eyes it's certainly not a, fun, a perfectly fungible asset mm. i can understand where you're coming from in terms of the arguments of you know bitcoins are often broken down and then they might get put back together and no one bitcoin stays you know well there are there are examples obviously of one bitcoin staying one bitcoin but there are certainly a majority of transactions that are broken down and then they might join onto another bitcoin so i, I certainly see where you're coming from mm -hmm. but the fact that 
there is an opportunity to be able to taint a Bitcoin with the examples that we both discussed. To me, it makes it very difficult for me to describe Bitcoin as a perfectly fungible asset. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I've transacted a lot in, in Bitcoin. Um, I've never once looked at the, the chain history of my coin. <laughs> so I think for, for most people, and I, and I do uh, quite a bit of due diligence on things. I've, I've actually looked, you know, at the Block Explorer for a lot, you know, at, at transactions. And I've even gone back and, and looked somewhat at history, but I, I have no idea what wallets. I, I usually look at the Blockchain Explorer because I find it interesting to see large amounts of Bitcoin being transacted. But I would have no way of, um, because the pseudonymous addresses, I, I don't know what coins are or what accounts are bad or what account, what accounts are good. So the average person um, really has no way of, of accessing that. It takes sophisticated, you know, Chainalysis software uh, to to find yeah, those things. Sure. So yes, to your point, it would be government agencies and things like that. But currently, there's no there's no law, I believe, at least in the United States. I haven't done my due diligence on the, or the rest of the world, but there's no law that. Uh, confiscates somebody so if you were to accept a 100 dollars bill that somehow was traced back to a cocaine transaction um you know two years ago the government doesn't have the right to confiscate your 100 dollars bill there's no law in the books today now it's not saying that no that no law could exist down the road um and so that that would you know that would support your side of the, the, the argument. Um, but in, in our current context, that that doesn't exist. It's not a problem. Um, it would maybe create a moral dilemma for somebody. And so that would, you know, then therefore take away from the fungibility. But I guess I'm just bringing it back to in a pragmatic sense, in a real world sense. I don't know anybody that's ever looked at the history. And again, I'm, my, 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 just because I don't haven't met somebody doesn't mean that that's the, the absolute case, but I've never met anybody that's looked into the history of their coins. Um, and there was the, I don't even know if I referenced in the book, but there was a, there was a mining firm that paid an environmental kind of in, you know, in the U S if you, if you serve food, you say you, you make uh, beef or, or you, uh, you sell beef, uh, you pay the USDA. And if you raise organic beef, you can, uh, get it. You can pay money to get a USDA certification. So it's USDA certified organic beef. Um, there was a mining company that paid an environmental group. I can't remember the name of the environmental group, but they paid for a clean Bitcoin certification. So this company basically said, it's like, oh, you have organic Bitcoin, <laughs> but it's like you have clean energy Bitcoin. And so they were, they did that. They paid all this money for the certification because they believed they were going to be able to sell it at a marked up price. Well, they sold some at a marked up price. So that might be where some of these news stories are coming from. They sold some, but they ultimately disbanded that program and they don't pay for that certification anymore because it didn't make economic sense. So um, it wasn't it wasn't profitable, right? <laughs> the certification cost more than the actual profit they were able to make. So market forces made it so it, it returned it back to fungibility um, for Bitcoin. So, yeah, I mean, you could make these cases, but I guess over the long term right now would be the best time to make the case against Bitcoin's fungibility. I think it has the strongest case right now, but every day that goes by, um, it has less and less, or has greater and greater fungibility. So I think the case against Bitcoin's fungibility becomes less and less relevant as more coins are mixed. Um, as you know, the, the early Bitcoin adopters that used it on Silk Road, they didn't understand a lot of, and I'm not saying this or encouraging this, but they didn't know how to anonymize their coins. Um, 
people say all the time, oh, Bitcoin's traceable, Bitcoin's not anonymous. There's plenty of ways to anonymize your coins, <laughs> coin mixing sites and things like that. They're illegal or you can be considered money laundering. So I'm not telling anybody to do that. But what I'm saying <laughs> is black market operators were not very sophisticated in the early days. Black market operators are much more sophisticated now. And so they will they will find ways to anonymize those coins or to scramble those coins so that uh, it actually returns Bitcoin to fungibility. So um, I would just say that over time, the arc of Bitcoin is is so, yes, you can make the argument that it's not 100 percent perfectly fungible. Um, that's not the camp I'm in. I, I would say it is fungible, um, but it has to, you have the strongest argument today. And the, you know, the 13 year history of Bitcoin uh, up to this point against fungibility. But I think the argument for fungibility gets stronger every day. That's, that's interesting to hear. Um, I know you mentioned a few laws and regulations that may be in the US, but I would just like to get your take on what happened earlier this year with the Canadian truckers. I'm sure you must have heard about the story. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. For, the, for those that haven't, the truckers in Canada were protesting against international travel restrictions that were put in place. Uh, with those wanting to basically re-enter the country, they need to be vaccinated, was my understanding. And the Canadian public started to send funds to these truckers using cryptocurrency as their cause after some main kind of uh, funding initiatives were, were banned. And I understand that 34 wallets, including 29 Bitcoin wallets, were basically put on a sanctions list. And the government basically ordered financial institutions not to interact with these addresses. And the funds had been donated. The funds that were donated to the truckers were effectively frozen. And it, it kind of gets even worse. I know this is a headline for, for newspapers and, and online articles to make, but a single mum working on minimum wages had donated $50 to the truckers, had her bank accounts frozen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Does this make Bitcoin any less fungible? Does it, you know, because it's, it's obvious that some countries have the ability like governments and banks can just blacklist and freeze the funds in this case. Mm. Um, and I know that we, you know, a lot of arguments around Bitcoin are the fact that it's not censorship resistant. Does this not demonstrate a prime example that actually it, it can be censored? Um, so, I, yeah, you mentioned there's like 50 something cases of it. Was that what it was of, of it, confiscation? Yeah, so 34 wallets, yeah. 34, excuse me, 34 wallets. So I don't know about all 34 wallets, so I might not be 100% accurate here, but the earliest reports that I had studied on that were that um, all of the wallets that I was aware of were exchange wallets. Um, it, were, were any of those, do you know if any of those were self-custody Bitcoin wallets? No, I believe you're correct. I do believe they were exchange wallets. I would have to do a double check though on all 34 yeah. if I'm being completely honest. Yeah. So because because I, I, I did reference the Canadian the Canadian trucker rally in the book. It was actually funny the way the way I wrote it. So I originally wrote this section on censorship resistance in I think November of 2021 or December. So it was like a couple months before it happened. And I was writing about how there's there's financial financial censorship in countries all over the world, you go to South America, you go to, you know, to Africa, uh, there's, there's warlords or there's these governments that are censoring their people's money, yada, yada, yada. Now people in the West, 
they haven't had to worry about this, but I assure you it's coming to the West. And then I ended up updating the section. I actually left that section written the way. And I just, I just put a note in the middle of the book. I wrote this section two months before the Canadian trucker rally. And here's <laughs> case in point. Um, and so it was just so, it was so poetic the way that Canada did that. And I, I just really thank the Canadian government for the, uh, the, the best sales pitch for Bitcoin ever. Um, but yeah, it's to my knowledge, this goes back to the not your keys, not your coins um, argument. And to my knowledge, all wallets, and I didn't know the number is 34 because I, I just remembered I studied a handful of the, the, the reports from the wallets. And if you dig down into it at the time, the, the latest I had heard was every one of them was an exchange wallet. And they even subpoenaed, and I put the quote from Nunchuck, they subpoenaed Nunchuck, one of the self-custody wallets. And um, I don't know, did you ever hear Nunchuck's uh, response to the subpoena? No, I didn't, no. Okay, I'm going to pull it up right now because uh, to Canadian subpoena um, government. So they had a brilliant, a brilliant response to it. Um, I hope I can find this because it's the way they say it was great. So, so yes, the, the Canadian government was subpoenaing uh, wallet companies. And uh, this is okay. So, yes, this is what Nunchuck responded to them. They said, this is quote. So this is the response. The court, <laughs> this was recorded in uh, as the court response to the Canadian government it says, Nunchuck IO says, we do not collect any user identification information beyond email addresses. We also did not hold any coins. Therefore, we cannot, quote, freeze our users' assets. We cannot even prevent them from being moved. We do not have any knowledge of the existence, nature, value, and location of our users' assets. This is by design. Please look up how self-custody private keys work. When the Canadian dollar becomes worthless, we will be here to serve you too. <laughs> that was their response to the subpoena. Um, and so that that's what happened. When the Canadian government started trying to, they realized that, okay, we can only we can only freeze a handful. I mean, 34 wallets for all the donations that, that the Canadian truckers got in Bitcoin, they were only able to freeze 34 wallets. That's because those people, unfortunately, they weren't as sophisticated as crypto users. And so they used Coinbase to, to send in a donation to another Coinbase wallet or something like that. It was actually a very, very small fraction. Um, that's why it goes back to it's so important. Go download Nunchuck. Go download go download Blue Wallet. Um, go download a software based wallet that's not a custodian that, that isn't you know linked to your identity um, because then you have sovereignty over your money and you can send it you can send it over. And that Canadian trucker thing it goes beyond. I think it's it, it's such a beautiful um, case study because it shows people. The, when I'm explaining Bitcoin to people for the first time, they're usually the first thing that I explained to them. I said, do you know how many people are involved in your financial transactions? Like if you were to send a Venmo payment to somebody else or a PayPal payment, do you know how many people are involved in your transaction? They're like, yeah, two, me and the person I'm sending it to. And I say, no. I said, there's actually always like five parties involved. There's your bank that you're getting permission from. There's you. There's PayPal as the payment rail, um, which Usually that means that Visa is also involved, then the receiving bank, and then the other person. So there's five or six parties involved. And any one of those parties can, uh, you're essentially asking permission from all of those parties to make that transaction happen. In the West, it's a very seamless process and it seems to work very well and we haven't had any issues with it. But the Canadian rally, the Canadian protest really showed 
how many how how different entities can interject in that process. So the first round of donations went through GoFundMe, which is a popular you know dope for those that don't know a popular donation site. You can raise if you need you know if you're having surgery and you don't have money, you can go to GoFundMe and you can get your friends and family to donate money to you. Well, the Canadian Trucker Rally they asked for donations. They actually got ten million dollars of donations uh, to buy fuel to buy food so that they could keep this uh you know this this freedom of speech protest going was was how they was how they pitched it and so gofundme a private company said we don't like the purpose of that we are for vaccine mandates we don't think that you guys should be doing this so they froze the funds sent it back to all the donors so one there's an, an instance of a private company shutting it down then another private company called Give Send Go, they stepped up and they said, oh, yeah, GoFundMe won't, won't send these donations. Well, guess what? We will. Um, so donate to Give Send or yeah, Give Send Go and we'll send these to the Canadian truckers. I think they donated or they got a few more, a few, a few million dollars more. But then that's when the Canadian government stepped in. They created uh, they passed like overnight. They passed a thing called the Emergencies Act. And I believe what they listed the the financing if you if you send a donation and it went into somebody's bank account it could be listed as i think like financing terrorism or something like that it was something very very extreme um and so that's when people started switching over to crypto and bitcoin so then then that's when you started hearing stories of um and of course they publicized these stories like oh crypto funds stolen like the one thing that crypto was finally supposed to exist for and bitcoin was finally supposed to exist for freedom of speech look at even those are being seized but again you're talking about an entire movement you think there was only i'm not saying you but people think there were only 34 donations and 34 wallets that were being donated to no 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 we're talking about thousands and thousands of truckers hundreds of hundreds of people in this movement giving donations or maybe thousands of people in this movement giving donations. And it wasn't just 34 wallets. And there's, there's actually a really cool video on YouTube. I wish I had the link to it. Um, that I could post it. I'll have to, I'll have to find it and tweet it out later or something. But um, they were actually, there's a video of this guy going around with uh, uh, cold wallets. He had in an envelope, he had keywords uh, and he said, he basically, he said here, he would go up to a truck and these guys are like freezing in their trucks because they have no more fuel. And he goes, here, the Bitcoin community just donated $6,000 worth of Bitcoin to you. Um, there's instructions inside of this envelope. It has a 24-word seed phrase. You open up that wallet and you're going to have totally self-sovereign Bitcoin. They were giving out envelopes with paper and Bitcoin on them and people were going up and opening wallets. So, so yes, while there is a component of censorship to exchanges i i definitely am not a fan of exchange i think exchanges are great for going and buying bitcoin sure like they serve a purpose but to think that those are bitcoin wallets or those are crypto wallets that's a facade they're absolutely not like that's not what they exist for they exist so that you can turn your fiat into into bitcoin um but beyond that you got to have a, a, a your own sovereign wallet so that you have control over it so if you're going to store large amounts then get a hardware wallet, get a Ledger Nano or a Treasure or something like that. Um, but if you're just, you know, if it's a, a small account, like you have a, a savings in a checking account, right? You put your put your savings in your savings account and then you have some in your checking account. Well, you can have your 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 wallet that's on your phone that you send lightning payments to your friends. Um, have that on your phone and you keep, you know, a couple hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin, a, a couple hundred thousand sats of Bitcoin on there. Um, that's a pretty safe way to go. And again, both of those you're sovereign over, but your Coinbase or your Binance or any of those 
you're not sovereign over. They can be subpoenaed. They can't. Coinbase would never send a letter to the Canadian government like Nunchuck did. They wouldn't tell them to kick rocks. They wouldn't say when the Canadian dollar becomes worthless, we'll be here to serve you, too. Can, uh, Coinbase can't say things like that because they will be, uh, you know, regulated and, and uh, sanctioned and all sorts of things like that. So just to close out the fungibility quickly, and then we can move on to a, another topic. I'm sure we could probably speak for three hours, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, but in, in terms of fungibility, just to close this out, um, the fact that these mechanisms exist that we've touched upon in terms of privacy, being able to track transactions, um, there's probably going to be a multitude of ongoing companies coming in as we speak and in the future as well that have the ability to do big data analysis and artificial intelligence on the blockchain to be able to track transaction histories in a more sophisticated manner. Would you not, would you be maybe not willing, maybe that's not the right word, but what would be your thoughts now in terms of describing in your book, Bitcoin as perfectly fungible? Cause I would just to make it obvious if, if I haven't already, I would certainly disagree. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think you make a strong point. So I, and I even told you offline, I said, you know what? Um, I'm certainly not the end all be all resource. And so um, there's already been updates that I've made to the book. Um, and if you make a compelling enough case that uh, I'll, the, the next edition will, will, will have an update. I think that you make a good case for um, and this is probably something I'll go back and kind of mull over tonight. But uh, I think you make a good case for me needing to clarify whether it's perfectly fungible now versus whether I mean it's perfectly fungible, the trajectory is towards perfect fungibility over time. Um, I think the trajectory is certainly towards fungibility. Even if this, even if the software is becoming more sophisticated to track Bitcoin, I think users will also become more sophisticated. Um, and here in the U.S., the the strange thing is that that there's so many there's a lobbying force behind Bitcoin now and behind crypto. Um, there's also plenty of uh, our legislators that own crypto cryptos and they're they're proponents of it and uh, they have skin in the game. We're I think we're right around the corner. I mean, this is it, it sounds absurd, especially to early Bitcoiners, but I think we might actually get some very pro Bitcoin legislation here soon. And I know that's kind of like a controversial point, but I think that that will lend itself back to um some of the privacy, even though that people say, oh, if you're going to regulate Bitcoin, they're going to ask for a lack of privacy. I don't know. I actually think that we might get uh, we're going to get some candidates coming along that are pro crypto candidates and they're going to be running on the idea of sovereign money. I think that sovereign money is becoming more and more popular and palatable for people where, where I live. Um, and it seems like that movement's only growing. Um, so anyways, all that to say is I, I, I think I'm probably going to go back and, and correct or, or maybe update that section where I talk about it's maybe it's not perfectly fungible now. Um, but I, I would still say I, I do I do think it's fungible. But I think that there are some some compelling arguments that it's not perfectly fungible. And so that uh, certainly I think that the trajectory is towards fungibility. Well, I've got to say, I must admit, it's great to hear that you're open-minded in the fact that actually it, it might not be perfectly fungible. I know you, I know you still feel on the case that it is fungible, but without going into, um, without speaking negatively of other Bitcoin maxis, let's just leave it on the fact that not everybody has that same perspective. So it's good to hear, to be honest with you. Fair um, enough. Thank but, you. But no, I, I but, appreciate you, and I appreciate you, um, you know 
being a, you know, a man of conviction and, and, you know, sharing, sharing your, your point of view. Cause it, yeah, that, that actually, it, it's a, these, these are topics we're working through, right? We're in a new industry. And so we we're, we're wrapping our heads around these concepts. And so, yes, when we're explaining these things, we want to make sure to, that, that we are open-minded so that we're, um, you know, showing people that we can be, uh, that we're maybe fallible people, but we're working towards kind of perfecting our craft, right? It's, it's a refining process. Sure, we're never, sure. we're never the perfected ends where we're this, we, we can show our, our refining process to the world. So, yeah. Okay, so moving on, um, I'm sure that you've probably read the white paper, the Bitcoin white paper, obviously, um, probably a few more times than me, I would say. Um, but as you know full well, Satoshi titles the paper as Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. And a store of value isn't really mentioned or digital gold, but you know, there's a lot of talking about payments and a lot of references to payments. What's your opinion on Satoshi's vision of Bitcoin becoming a peer-to-peer electronic cash system? Do you, do you think it's coming to fruition? Um, well, so I, I actually, I include the white paper at the back of the book because I think it is important for people to read. And I think that even, even though it's as easy as going and Googling it, most people don't. And it's, you know, what is it? It's only like nine pages long or something like that. I forget how many yeah, pages, yeah, it is, but nine pages It's very yeah. short. So like, it's one of those things where it's like the communist manifesto. I, I don't like the communist manifesto, but it's one of those, but most people hear the communist manifesto and they just, you know, I know plenty of people that hate communism and they're just like, wow, uh, you know, I would never read the communist manifesto because it's probably so long. I'm like, dude, the book's 28 pages. Like there's some of these critical works in history where we just need to go read them. And then you sound like a genius because you read the Bitcoin white paper. Or you, you read these, some of these, these foundational documents are pretty short. So I think it is worthwhile to go and go back and, and look at the Bitcoin white paper. Um, but I think it's important that we don't treat the white paper as though it's scripture um, because we do. And it's funny because I'm the guy that wrote Bitcoin evangelism. So it's like this book <laughs> titled after this like very religious concept. Um, but it's almost poking fun. And I, I'm actually a very religious guy. I'm, I'm a Christian. And so like, I, that is that is an important thing to me. Um, but I think that religion um, and the history of religion has some pretty uh, kind of bad flaws and the, the zealotry and things that can happen. And so um, and we even see that with Bitcoin maximalism it can be there's there's bitcoin maximalists that are very well thought out and very well spoken and they make the great case for bitcoin and then there's very toxic bitcoin maximalists that that are trying to exclude the rest of the community um and so i think that's very much like religion right there's there's people inside of the church that are very welcoming and hey you know what jesus is here to forgive you and get you on the back the, the best track and then other people want to beat people over the head with jesus and, and make them feel terrible because they did something bad right and so it's kind of the same thing and, and so we we have this right so our bible is people treat our bible and bitcoin as, as satoshi's white paper i think it's good for understanding what the basis was what were but it's one of those things when you go back and uh, like Sir Isaac Newton, you know, one of the most brilliant minds came up with how we understand gravity as we know it and all these things. He didn't understand quantum mechanics. He didn't understand computer science. And so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of <laughs> clarify what I mean by this. But there's brilliant minds in history that the average person knows more than not because we're more brilliant than them, but because we have hindsight on our side, right? We can go back and we have, we stand on the shoulders of giants, like Sir Isaac Newton said, we stand on the shoulders of giants. So we get to, we get to have all this information that's just given to us, right? So we actually know more than Sir Isaac Newton, one of the most brilliant people of all time. I know more about how, uh, you know, 
email servers work than Sir Isaac Newton. And it's not because I'm smarter. It's because I, I've been able to have time on my side. So what I mean by that is Satoshi, he was brilliant and he put all this together. But there's a lot of people, I would say, that know a lot more about Bitcoin today than even Satoshi did back in 2008. Um, and so even though I think his original vision was peer-to-peer -peer cash, and I think that I think that Bitcoin, that's the interesting thing is I think that Bitcoin is, is scaling towards that. And I love, I use the Lightning Network all the time. I think that the Lightning Network is that that peer-to-peer -peer cash, instant settlement, blah, 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 all, all the cool things about that about Bitcoin. Um, and so I think Bitcoin's that reinforcement base layer. But I don't think that Satoshi originally had that in mind. Now, his later communications, he did seem to reference um, layer two types of things. Um, the book... The block size wars. I don't know if you ever if you've read through that book. It's a it's a short book, but they do talk about some of uh, Satoshi's later communications um, before he before he took off, and he does seem to reference that this kind of stackability to Bitcoin. Um, but regardless, I, I don't think that uh, yes, I don't know if, if Satoshi would have originally said, "Hey, we need to have a Lightning Network, or we need to have these 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 other components to it." I think that his original vision was that this will be. Um, peer-to-peer -peer cash on its own at its base layer sure. but i just don't know if satoshi was able to visualize everything that was going to come along and so yeah it would be interesting to hear his thoughts but ultimately i think by the fact that he vanished and the fact that he hasn't poked his head in and, and used his thrown his weight around as king of bitcoin i think it goes to show that uh what bitcoin or what what, what satoshi says ultimately i think he would say this too what he says doesn't really matter right it's like we have these foundational principles that are more important than even what satoshi would say um so i think it's important that we understand just that for history and what what the original intent was and what these foundational principles are um but it's okay i think to grow beyond that um and so yeah anyways that can be a slippery slope or, uh, a little bit of a slippery slope what i just said so uh, yeah i could rein that in and that's all probably an hour-long conversation in and of itself but <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty long-winded <laughs> as it is so i'll try not to keep talking <laughs> no no that's okay i'm sure if you don't mind i'm sure we can overrun a little bit i'm flexible from my end so that's okay um because i'm you know i'm i'm happy you touched upon lightning network um i know you touched upon it quite a few times in your book and at the moment there's there seems to be a fair amount of hype around this implementation in the market. I'm sure you'd probably agree. Now, I'm not the most knowledgeable. I don't know all the technicals around it. But if you don't mind, I would like to try and give this summary a go. And perhaps you can correct me and fill in the gaps if you need to. Um, but let's start off sending you a transaction on Lightning Network and, and how it would start, if you don't mind. So we both need to deposit the same amount of Bitcoin onto the Lightning Network in order to open up what's called a channel. And the amount that's deposited has to be at least the same, if not more, than what is going to be sent back and forth from myself to you and vice versa. And for this to work, I understand that it would require two on-chain transactions. And of course, they would be need to be performed on the layer one. And from this point onwards, both yourself and I, we would be able to transact back and forth in what would be basically Bitcoin IOUs. And each of these transactions would involve a small fee, as long as they're not above and beyond what we deposited together to open that channel up. And let's say, for example, we share a friend named Ben, and I actually don't have a channel open with him, than to have a channel with him. Depending on how much I want to send to him, I could send him a, a you via your 
as long as the deposit in your channel with Ben has a large amount of deposited Bitcoin. Uh, and so in theory, if we continue to open channels as a worldwide society, you know, peer to peer, then everyone can be interconnected. Is that, is that about right? Do you want to fill in any missing gaps? Because I'm sure I've missed a fair amount of information there. No, that's a, that's a brilliant explanation. That's a very, very good like technical explanation of it. Um, but I just think that anybody that ha- doesn't, that hasn't used Bitcoin Lightning before, um, that might sound confusing to them. Because I mean, that's how it was for me. When I heard that, that that's actually the most distinct <laughs> explanation I've ever heard of it. Um, but that's exactly spot on. Oh, I'll take that. Um, but I still think that, yeah, yeah, no, that was very, that very, very well said. That was the best one yet. So you, you should record that on YouTube and put that out there because then you'll get some hits. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I think that that sounds confusing because that sounds like more steps than anything you have to do in Bitcoin. Honestly, as far as practically what it looks like in the real world, you go to say, I, I use Blue Wallet, but you can use Wallet of Satoshi, whatever you want to use. Open Blue Wallet. It says you hit add new wallet. I'm going to add the lightning wallet. You write down your 12 words. So you, you've got a wallet and you just, you fund that wallet. You want to put a hundred sats in it. You want to put a million sats in it, whatever. You just start sending payments. Like it, it literally just feels like a Bitcoin wallet. All the technical stuff about opening channels, that component is more for like, I run a lightning channel as well, just to contribute to the network. So I just opened, I have a raspberry Pi that sits up in the loft of my house. It, it's like, kind of like what miners do for for Bitcoin. But I just have this little computer device that sits up in the corner and it's not loud. It it doesn't consume a lot of electricity because processing transactions, this is what a lot of people get confused about. Um, Processing transactions isn't what consumes a lot of electricity for Bitcoin. It's the proof of work algorithm, which is actually what takes a lot of electricity. So with Lightning, when I run a channel, I'm not doing proof of work. I'm, I'm just literally processing transactions that are running through my channel. So what I did was that's kind of technical. It's, it's not even that hard. You can watch a YouTube video and it shows you step by step. And in 20 minutes, you can have a lightning channel open where you can earn some sats and things like that for processing the transactions. It's not a huge moneymaker, but it's more to get a little bit of sats because I think they're going to be worth a lot of money in the long run. And I help, I want to help contribute to the network. So I'm opening these channels, but I put, I put a million a million sats on this channel and then anybody that has a transaction that's a million sats or less can use my channel as a as a route for payments and things like that so yes kind of technical if you're setting up a channel to kind of help contribute to the network but if you just want to send lightning payments it's literally as easy as downloading a wallet opening the wallet and then just sending bitcoin i i tell everybody if you want uh, and because let me let me take one step back when my mom she was like, it was like really difficult for her to wrap her head around Bitcoin. She said she couldn't touch it. I can't feel it. I don't know what's going on with this. And so I told her, I said, mom, well, can you touch and can you feel an email? And she said, no. And I said, well, do you use email? Like, I know she does because she sends me emails all the time, <laughs> like news articles that she wants me to read. And, uh, um, <laughs> and I said, well, think back, think back to the first time that you sent an email. You just typed up an email and you hit send. You didn't ask how SMTP servers work. You didn't ask how TCP IP protocols on the internet transferred that email. It just, you click send <clears throat> and it worked. And she's like, oh, you're right. And so I basically sat down and I had her send a Bitcoin transaction. It wasn't even a lightning transaction. It was a Bitcoin transaction. And she's like, oh, that was easy, you know? And so lightning I've been doing that lately. I've been sitting down with friends and I said, okay, open a lightning wallet on your phone here. I'm going to send you a thousand sats right now. And I put my phone right next to theirs. And as soon as I hit send, it pops up in their wallet 
and usually very small transactions actually have no transaction fee. You can send like a hundred stats for like no fee whatsoever. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's very, very cheap. Even when you do send a payment that has some sort of fee, it's like one twelfth of a penny. It's so, so cheap and it's literally instant. And so when people see that and they say, wow, I just sent money across the world on a Sunday night when no banks were open, when, when PayPal, when Venmo wouldn't have, have, have been able to do this cross-border transaction and all this kind of stuff, I was able to, to send that. To me, that's when like people's eyes open up. So yes, I think explaining like the technical things about a Bitcoin wallet, like for, for the nerds, like us nerds, we like to know that kind of stuff. <laughs> but but for, for the world, think of it like email. You don't need to understand how those protocols work um, in order for emails to be routed. Um, same thing with, with, with lightning. So, so yes, I think it's, it's smart. It's, it's really important to be armed with that answer. If we're out there being Bitcoin evangelists, we need to be able to explain how lightning works. So we don't look like crazy people, but as far as like what wins people over just sending that first lightning, lightning payment and giving somebody a thousand sats, which is like, <laughs> you know, a few pennies, it's, it's like 25 cents or whatever. Um, that's that's you can make a lot of bitcoiners around the world by sending people 25 cents okay well you know thanks for giving us like some in-depth uh descriptions on that it's, it's obviously really helpful for, for those who are into the lightning network there are a few concerns i have that it would be great to get your take on um so let's say for example I would like to send to Paul, um, but I want to do it in a peer-to-peer fashion. So I try to go from, uh, for example, uh, I don't have an open channel with Paul, but I need to send it via Eric, which needs to send it via Debbie, which needs to send it via Christian, and then it can go to Paul. And then maybe that it might involve five, six or seven more transactions, peer-to-peer channels. Won't it, it be a case of if they are, if they want to perform a larger transaction, and not everybody has that same that that adequate amount of Bitcoin deposited in that peer-to-peer channel. Don't you feel like we'll end up eventually with these centralized hubs that have a that have that that large enough balance to be able to connect you with a large enough you know a large amount of people to send Bitcoin to? So, for example, um, instead of avoiding these seven peer-to-peer channels, I would send it directly to Paul, but it would go via a centralized hub, or in other words, a central custodial intermediary. You know, and in that case as well, wouldn't that also save on transaction fees? So there would be almost a an incentive for those to become into existence. And so that would be one concern I have. And the other one would actually be whether there's actually an incentive for Bitcoin holders to hold their Bitcoin on a channel in order to have channels open. I understand that the incentive to hold the Bitcoin in the channels via transaction fees that you earn is very very minimal i know you just mentioned small transaction fees that you earn is it simply to you know have your contribution that you're contributing towards a a peer-to-peer cash system your view uh, how would you how would you come back to me on those few concerns i have or not just me obviously many people have those yeah concerns, okay. but yeah yeah no those are those are very, very valid concerns so um Remind me of any of the questions if I if I miss them. So we'll go backwards. Okay. Sure. So starting with the last one, why would so what would be the benefit of keeping your your Bitcoin on there? Um, it's you're still it's still your channel. So you're you're it's like have, holding your Bitcoin in a wallet. So you're sovereign over those coins. It's not in somebody. It's not custodial in somebody else's hand. So you're it's not like you're lending your Bitcoin to Celsius for them to generate interest on. Right. It's a uh, it's a way to 
generate, I guess you could think of it like passive income, passive Bitcoin or interest on your Bitcoin. There, there is a there is an alpha effect to that alpha, meaning it's performing above and beyond just the regular appreciation of Bitcoin. You're getting more Bitcoin. Um, and so you're and the more the more sats or the more Bitcoin your channel has on it, the the broader spectrum of transactions you can do. Right. You'd mentioned that before. So if I only if I have a thousand sat channel i have i can only process really small payments if i put a whole bitcoin on a channel then yeah that's most most transactions around the world except for maybe giant bank transactions or giant exchange transactions are going to be able to run through my channel so i can i can process many more transactions um and so to your point that there could be a centralization of not everybody can open a big channel um i would say it it even though, yes, there are people that could open up giant channels, right? There's an exchange and they could open up a 5,000 Bitcoin channel. And then any that, that basically any payment in the world could be routed through that channel potentially. Um, it doesn't mean they have to route through that channel. So, I, you know, like I said, I have a, a 1 million sat um, Bitcoin channel. And that if you look at the metrics most payments fall well below that most people sending lightning payments lightning payments are not sending over a million sats um and that's what 0.0101 bitcoin that's not that's not a huge amount of bitcoin um and i'm i'm not to be like oh i look at me i'm an early bitcoiner and i have all these bitcoins but i could open a channel with several bitcoin and then you know if if i open a channel with three bitcoin pretty much any transaction in the world falls under three Bitcoin. And so even somebody that's a kind of a small time guy like me could make it to kind of keep it decentralized away from big centralized exchanges being the only ones that could route payments. Um, there's plenty of guys out there that are, you know, doing better in the Bitcoin game than I am. They would have no problem opening up a fairly large channel, still keeping it decentralized, still keeping the options for payment routing down. Um, so I think it'd be very difficult for there to be a centralization within Bitcoin Lightning. Um, and again, my my thought is Bitcoin Lightning right now is about as centralized. It's pretty decentralized, but it's about as centralized as it's ever going to be. I think it's going to continue to be more and more decentralized in the same way Bitcoin was. Bitcoin started off very centralized with, you know, uh, Satoshi. And then there was, you know, early adopters and early early node operators and miners and things like that. Um, there's a very few amount, relatively few amount of people that run lightning channels right now. And uh, I think that number is only going to grow. I mean, we have a, a ton of upside in terms of how many people will run lightning channels. And, uh, and every wallet is essentially... A lightning channel too so every time somebody you get somebody to open a new bitcoin lightning wallet you're creating one more channel and this network effect is is growing exponentially so i'm not worried about a centralization of it i don't think that that's going to uh to be a factor because again in order to process large payments there's plenty of people that are still relatively small players that could open up a large channel like i you know like i'm saying i'm not bragging i could do one and i'm not i'm not a, i'm not an exchange i'm not michael saylor i'm not any of those people um but guys on my level which is pretty low level <laughs> could, could open a large channel sure no i mean i mean that makes sense but there's i mean there's obviously other concerns as well that people have including myself in terms of the fact that in my understanding is that with the lightning network it's not the trustless system that we have on Bitcoin layer one or on other layer ones that we have. And 
there's also been a number of, well, I don't know how many hacks there have been, but there have been a few hacks where, you know, you could argue that it's because of the developing network of Lightning and the technology behind it. And I, I can appreciate those arguments in terms of the security element of, of hacks being achieved. But those would be two elements I would look at, trustlessness and security. And there's other facts in terms of like, for example, something that we often refer to, as I'm sure you've heard this phrase many times, banking the unbanked. Now, if we have to open a channel on the Bitcoin Lightning Network with a layer one, doesn't that remove the accessibility to those who can't even afford to do, unfortunately, can't even afford to do a layer one transaction with Bitcoin to open that up? I know that the the fees for transactions on Bitcoin can vary from from one to two dollars to a few hundred dollars, depending on whether we're in a, a bear market or a bull market. But that would be another concern of mine. And just going to the centralized hubs as well. I know I'm throwing a lot at you here, so I do apologize. Um, but won't these hubs eventually touched upon it? But won't these hubs eventually or potentially need to comply with KYC and AML if that centralization that i believe could happen w wouldn't that come into fruition because mm. they would be passing through a hell of a lot of money and so is that is that really what we would describe as a is a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system yeah so um as far as the first question that i can recall was the um you know rug pulls or hacking or things like that on the lightning network um i've heard reports yeah, sure. of those too i'm not uh very familiar with with how those work like on a technical level um like i don't know if it was the channel operator that that did something that blocked transactions or you know what kind of power as, as a channel operator i can tell you um i'm very hands-off with, with the transactions i just let it run in the background and i just let it process payments i don't i don't interject in any way um i actually as a general operator maybe because i'm not a computer scientist i don't even know how to interject <laughs> myself in a transaction um it's basically like i'm i'm running this kind of software that lacks sentience and i'm just kind of it's like person a gets this person b gets this and so that's the, at the level that i'm running it um there's no there's no uh you know, like I said, interjecting in the, in the transactions, but yeah, maybe if there's sure. a, a very yeah. sophisticated channel, uh, they might have a way to do that. And that, uh, so I'm just unfamiliar with, with how they would do that. Um, and then going back to the opening and closing or banking the unbanked question, um, having to do a transaction to open and close a channel. Again, this is only if you're running a channel to process transactions. If you want to just send lightning payments, if you go in, like I keep mentioning blue wallet, it's just, what I use. Um, if you go to Blue Wallet <laughs> yeah, and sure. open a, if you opening a, if you open a Lightning Wallet, there's no opening and closing uh, on the on the chain. Like you just have this wallet, and I believe it's because you're using Blue Wallet's channel. Um, and so if you want if you want to use another party's channel, and you're not opening and closing transactions on the blockchain, um, that would be probably I think the best argument for hubs and centralization, not necessarily people that hold, you know, that host a large amount of Bitcoin on a channel, but more so the software companies that, that host channels. Um, so I think that would be the number one argument to say that th those would be the ones that, that would be hubs or, or where centralization would happen. But again, there's, there's a, um, there's competition amongst these softwares, uh, these software companies, and they, any, any person at any time could develop 
a Bitcoin wallet, right? Like that a lot of these wallets are open source too. So, so you can copy it and you can create, you know, your own version of, of their wallet um, and have full autonomy over it. Um, in that case, then if you were to do that, then yes, you would need to be opening and closing transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain, the base layer. Um, but yeah, if, if the, the masses probably will go to software companies and, you know, a, a blue wallet or a wallet of Satoshi and use their lightning wallets through them. Um, and when they do that, they're not opening and closing. They're not paying, you know, $5 transaction fees or something like that to open and close payments. Um, you're really just, it, it kind of just looks like a Bitcoin wallet um, that has these sats in it and you just send and receive as you please. You're not, you're not seeing transactions or opening and closing of payments on the Bitcoin base protocol sure oh well I, I just wanted to say i appreciate i threw a hell of a lot at you then and um that's part <laughs> of the major part of that is simply because I'm, I'm actually trying to realize the pros and cons myself and i'm working out for myself so mm. yeah um well i did want to touch on bitcoin fractional reserve and i know you've got a uh, an area in your book about fractional reserve practices and banking but i know we've gone over the hour mark and i, I won't uh, throw too much but um, I know we yeah, so we're coming up to the end, and it's probably best to start wrapping it up. But if you don't mind, I'd actually like to read a few lines from your book from my perspective because I think it summarizes a few of the thoughts that I have today on the technology, and um, I know others do, and, and others disagree as well. But um, the kind of areas I really enjoyed, or the quotes I enjoy were, were the following: so, a humble mind and open eyes allows us to learn new things. Resistance may come from a place of ignorance or individuals being unable to see past current limitations of the technology to see what its potential is, or the resistance may come from seeing a need for further innovations within the tech that do not yet exist. So it would be productive for dialogues about blockchain to revolve around how to make the tech better and more efficient rather than whether it's here to stay or not, because it is emphatically here to stay. So that said... I would love to be able to have another conversation with you about something, an, a new protocol called the Mimblewimble protocol. You may well have heard of it. Um, and potentially mm -hmm. even Epic Cash, if you were up for a conversation. I won't put any pressure on you for now. Um, <laughs> I'll let you just digest that potentially <laughs> if you'd like to have a conversation. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, thanks for joining the show. You've been a great guest and you've clearly got fantastic knowledge around the subject. Um, and it's always good to talk with somebody else around crypto in the overall industry that has the same passion. So, yeah, thanks for joining on. You've been mm -hmm. fantastic. Oh, well, thank you. I, I appreciate the uh, the discussion. This stuff is so fun for me. <laughs> I love I love mulling through these things. I love refining my ideas because um, every everything that I've put in the book before it ever got in the book has probably been refined and updated and changed, you know, 10 times over the course of my Bitcoin knowledge, just as I listen to somebody talking. And, and so, I mean, certainly talking to you and hearing your perspective um, is, is even giving me food for thought and just going back and, and edifying me. I mean, it really is some of the things, just being able to talk things out, <laughs> it just allows you to uh, grasp, grasp more of this stuff. So your questions are amazing. Thank you so much. I mean, it's really been helpful for me. Well, I'm, I'm actually confident that there's probably a number of areas we haven't touched upon. In fact, I actually know there isn't. So, you know, if you want to part two to this, I'd be more than, well, I'd be really up for it. So if you'd like to as well, perhaps we can, you know, organize that at some point in the near future if you're interested i'm 100 i'm 100 yeah i'm 100 on board with that I, I would love to do that um 
So yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And and um, just for anybody that's in the audience, if you guys um, if you want the book, it's it's on Amazon. But I just keeping up with the the ethos of Bitcoin, I want this to. It really is about spreading knowledge. I want people to read the book right now. I hope someday, you know, I hope I sell a million books. That's great, make some money off of it. But that's not where I'm at right now. <laughs> where I'm at right now is getting this information out. Um, and so uh, the ebook is open source and free. So if any of you guys want the ebook, just DM me and I'll, I'll send you a link to the ebook. If you want to buy it, you can buy it on Amazon. That's great. And I would appreciate that as well. Um, but seriously, the ebook, you can I have me send it to you. You can forward it to 10 friends. Um, and that, you know, sometimes it's like the easiest way to orange pill people. Um, you might not feel confident to have all the answers, but you could just give them this one resource. I mean, we've, I, I haven't had too many people that were no coiners, people that just had nothing to do with Bitcoin. I, I don't know of anybody that didn't not go out and buy Bitcoin. I mean, the editor of my book, she said, <laughs> she, I, I had this woman, this professional editor, and uh, she she said she's edited three cryptocurrency books before, and she just walked away thinking crypto was, was worse <laughs> than she ever thought. And she's like, these were not compelling <laughs> points. And she told me after she read, after she finished editing my book, she went out and bought Bitcoin. <laughs> so um, it's, I think it's been a, a good orange pill experience. So yeah, like I said, if anybody wants the ebook, I'll just, I'll, I'll DM it to you. Um, so I'd you know, appreciate you guys sharing it with other people. Uh, thanks, Brian. So would you like to let, you know, lastly, would you like to let anyone else or, or everybody who, listening on live or on repeat, how can they follow you on your social media platforms? Yeah, I'm really responsive on Twitter. So, you know, friend, you know, follow me. I'll follow you back. I, I, I don't care about <laughs> having a ton of people that I'm following. I like I like following people in the Bitcoin community. Um, so I'm on Instagram, too. If you if you like Instagram, I do more like visual stuff over there. Obviously, um, it's just at Brian dot dement, D-E-M-I-N-T. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, the best way to to get the book is on Amazon. It's just like it's available in the most markets that way. Um, you can get it through my website, freshlymintedbooks.com. Um, but that one is just the, sometimes it can be more expensive that way with shipping and things like that. So Amazon's usually the best way to go. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And if you guys have ever have any questions, um, and you're like, Hey, this person at work asked me this question. I don't know how to respond to it. I'm usually pretty excited to try and help you formulate a response to it or, or, or write a, I'll help you write a text message back to a friend that has a question. And uh, this is the time to be prepared with these answers. Cause I don't know how long the audience has been um, in the space. Cause I'm sure, I'm sure it's probably like a wide range of, 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 uh, of veteranship in the, in the Bitcoin space. But when we're in a bear market right now, as we all know, when the bull market comes back around, your DMs and your text messages are going to absolutely blow up. Oh, absolutely. I, I know the feeling. I know. The yeah. Feeling. Yeah. And so it can be kind of like almost overwhelming to answer all of these questions. So it's, <laughs> nice, it's nice to get the repetitions in now, right? Like, okay, I kind of got some answers to these, to these questions right now when nobody's really asking me because not that many people, not the, the, the regular masses don't really care about Bitcoin right now until the price is a hundred thousand and then everybody's going to want to buy it. So, um, anyways, this is a good time to uh, to do some study and, and that sort of stuff. Thanks, Brian. I'm sure we'll be in touch. Hopefully, we can sort out a part two to this. And yeah, thanks for joining again. You've been a great guest, and we'll speak soon. Yeah. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. You have a good night. Cheers, Brian. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.